You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. All right, so if you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible, would you please raise your hand and an usher will bring you one. If you um, would like a, a physical one, you can actually take it home if you'd like, uh, if you promise that you'll try to read it. Um, but, um, but yeah, if, if you don't want to open your phone up or whatever, you like the physical tactile feel of a real Bible with pages and smells and stuff like that, um, you could uh, raise your hand. Ushers will bring you a Bible. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Today's text is actually verses 20 through 25. But just like last week, what I want to do is I want to read to you, um, starting in chapter 1, verse 17, and read all the way down to 25. I want to give you guys a little bit of context with uh, what we're going to be studying today. Now, remember, um, this is a letter. This is not necessarily a book or a narrative. This is a letter, and we're, we're catching this letter right in the middle of a conversation. Um, this, we've been saying this every week. Paul planted the church in Corinth. He went there, he started the church. And then after the church was doing really well, he left and handed the church off to the elders, the local pastors and the local elders at that church. Now he's writing them a letter back because there's some things that have gone kind of a cattywampus in the church, a little bit wacky in the church. And he's trying to center the church on the cross. And the cross of Christ isn't something that, it's like this point of entry and then we move on. He's trying to really center the entire church around the cross and for them to have a, um, a cross-shaped life or to be people of the cross. And so today, uh, just a little disclaimer, what, um, we're going to try to follow Paul's logic, his, his, um, his argument, but I, I'm, I will say you might not understand this sermon until worship, Okay. You might not understand this until we start singing a couple of the so- these songs and we start to worship and then we start to sing and then the, the things will click. And you only get it in glimpses. You only get it for a moment. And it might, you might go, oh, now I get it. And then you'll unget it. But then you'll get it again. Then you'll unget it. It's just like one of those type of sermons. So if you can this morning, stick with me. We'll try to follow what Paul is trying to teach the church in Corinth. And then we'll sing. And as we sing, um, I was telling Jason... Uh, our, our worship leader this morning, uh, Jason Stevens, that th- this sermon didn't even make sense to me until, I, until the first set of music. Um, like, I even walked in going, I have no idea what this means. Um, I know that might sound really dumb. Um, it, it does, and, I, and I'll confess that. I, I came in just going, I don't, I don't really know. And then during the second song that we sang and the third song, I, I understood. And then, so that's why I, I give that little disclaimer. You might not understand this until, um, until we sing. So let me read this, and then let me pray. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 17. We talked about verse 17 three weeks ago, and then move to our text this morning, verse 20. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate our text this morning. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know him. 
God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Let's pray. God, I thank you this morning for your, your word. I pray, God, that you, would, that you would open up eyes and enlighten hearts this morning, that through the gospel and the message preached, that you would save that not only would you save people initially, but you would continue to bring us to the process of salvation. As Paul even says here, those who are being saved, would you keep saving us, Lord? Renew us, God, this morning by your word. I submit my, my mouth and my mind and my heart to you, and um, these things are, are way too heavy for me to even deal with, and so I need your grace. And, um, and Lord, I pray that you would anoint me, God, right now, so that we would come to know and worship Jesus Christ. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, In Rodney Reeves' book, he wrote a book called Spirituality According to Paul. He tells this this story uh, of a course he teaches at at a university that he's a professor at. And, And the course is called The Bible and American Culture. And in this book, it's bas- in this, in this um, course, it's basically how the Bible functions as a protagonist and antagonist to American ideals revealed in our cultural text, like film or plays and music. One, one winter, a, a student presented an analysis of his favorite, fi- favorite film, Braveheart. And so he got up and he like did this, this thing like how Braveheart exposes and shows, Scripture shows, in his case, um, Jesus. He came and he even dressed the part. He, wore a, he, wore a, he painted his face. He had wild hair going everywhere. He had a kilt on. He had a sword in his hand. So he came up to, in the front of class, just dressed to the nines, um, dressed like uh, Mel Gibson in Braveheart. And, um, and then he presented his paper. And this is what he said. Wallace was a hero a messianic figure bringing hope to the poor and oppressed of his homeland, just like Jesus. The student even played a clip from the film showing how Wallace sacrificed himself for the good of the people, inspiring followers to carry on with the mission of bringing freedom to the Scottish people. And then his, at the end of his presentation, he says, he stands up and he has his sword drawn in the air, and he says, so like William Wallace, we Christians must raise the sword of the Spirit and carry on the battle bringing freedom to Christ for all. And then the guys cheered and the girls were like, whatever, you know, whatever. <laughs> the guys were just so pumped on this thing. And so the professor, he's like, he's done and everybody cheers and all this other stuff. And so the professor asked him, what made you think Wallace's death was a sacrifice? And so the student responded, well, the sequence of events leading to Wallace's death in the film. He was betrayed by a close friend, beaten by an arrest, arresting officers, imprisoned by a wicked ruler. A woman offered Wallace a drink to ease the pain of his soon-to-be death. Strapped to a cross, crowd mocked him as he was brought before his executioners. He was lifted up, suspended between heaven and earth with arms stretched out, screaming in great pain. His followers hid, a sword thrust his side. His last breath was a victory cry. That's what he said. So the professor said, yes, that does look like a sacrifice, but we all know it wasn't. 
All those who live by the sword die by the sword, right? Wallace got what was coming to him. He was a murderer, and the law finally caught up with him. History does not give us the details of Wallace's execution. So why would you suppose the director wanted Wallace's death to look like the death of Christ? And so now the class started responding. The class said, well, he was making the ultimate sacrifice for his countrymen. He was dying for freedom while fighting your enemies. It was a noble sacrifice. So then the professor said this, Wallace didn't know Jesus, did he? He didn't respond to injustice like Jesus did, did he? And then the class fell silent. And then the professor said, what if Wallace did? How would the film be different if Wallace had followed the ways of Christ? And then one student stood up and said, well, I suppose he would have visited all the villages preaching peace and telling them to love their enemies, but we all know that doesn't work. And then the whole Christian class gasped, like, he said it. Like, you're not supposed to say that out loud. And then the, the kid with the kilt in the front of the, of, the, of the class is like his sword. He literally sheathed his sword. He's like, okay, game over. And then the kid in the front with the whole kilt outfit on, he said, why didn't I see that before? I claim to be a disciple of Christ, and yet I would rather have a Messiah who kills his enemies than one who loves them. Jesus... In our culture, has been so glossed over to be glamorous and so candy-coated to be palpable, so beautified to be inspiring that we forget just how scandalous the cross of Christ is. And I want to talk about the scandal of the cross this morning in our text that we just read. Today I want to look at it like this. The wisdom of God and the, fool- the wisdom of the world and the foolishness of God two sort of movements in our text. The wisdom of the world, Paul is saying, and then the foolishness of God. This is what Paul calls the power of God. It's actually the foolishness of God. First, the wisdom of God. What Paul does in this section is he contrasts God's wisdom with human wisdom. So he talks about God's wisdom. And God's wisdom, he says, looks foolish to the world. The way God does things looks silly to the world. And then he says, then there's human wisdom. And human wisdom looks wise to the world, but it looks foolish to God. Now, by human wisdom, the wisdom of the world, let me tell you what I do not mean by that, or what Paul does not mean by that. Paul does not mean, he's not talking about humanity's capacity to think or to be intellectual. If you think that Christianity is a dumb religion or a dumb faith, it takes no intellectual power to think like this, you're dead wrong. Paul is a very smart man, schooled, trained, and by secular and Christian standards alike, considered a genius. So when we're talking about worldly wisdom or human wisdom, I'm not talking about your capacity to think or your intelligence. You should bring your capacity to think and you should bring your intelligence into the conversation. So what does he mean by worldly wisdom here? This is what Paul means by worldly wisdom. Wisdom can be defined as the capacity of judging rightly in matters relating to life and conduct. So a question would be, how do I make a decision? That's wisdom. Whenever you're looking to make a decision, you will ask people that are very smart and educated, but you want wisdom. How do I make this decision? Or the ability to cope. How do I handle pressure and disappointment? That's wisdom. 
experiential knowledge, meaning what do I do with what I know? I might be very educated and very smart, but what do I do with what I know? That's wisdom. Or the quest for self-understanding and for mastery of the world. How do I take over the world? That's wisdom. How do I make my life count in this world? How do I live my life with my career choices and my relationship choices and my choice of where I'm going to live and where all, those, all of those things, how do I make those choices? That's wisdom. Now, with this up on the, uh, on the screen, you can answer these one of two ways. You can answer them with a worldview shaped by human wisdom or a worldview shaped by God. And this is what Paul contrasts. A worldview shaped by human wisdom answers all of these questions with two words, power and success. All of those questions listed below can be answered but with this as the end game. Will it give you power in the world's eyes and will, you, will it bring you success in the world's eyes? Or your culture's eyes? Or your city's eyes? Will it, or your family's eyes? Will it bring power? Will it bring success? So, how do I make a decision? Well, basis, it, the basis is power and success. How do I handle pressure or disappointment? This normally comes with not getting power or success. How do I, what do I do with what I know? Will what I know bring me success or power? How do I make my life count in this world? How do I get success and power? Let me give you an example of this because this might be kind of out there for you. Let me give you an example. The world says... Marry a beautiful woman or a successful man. Or when a beautiful woman and a successful man to get together, that's a power couple, right? I mean, so it's like one of those things. Like, I'm successful, you're beautiful, we're a power couple. <clears throat> now, to get the beautiful woman, you have to be a successful man. Or to get a successful man, you have to be a beautiful woman. We all know how this works. But God's wisdom doesn't say that. God's wisdom says marry a person of godly character, of giving character, who may or may not be beautiful, who may or may not be successful. God's wisdom makes that an irrelevant point. Are they successful? It doesn't matter. Are they beautiful? It doesn't matter. You may or may not get power or riches as a couple, but you'll follow Jesus together. That is God's wisdom. But even in your single minds right now, you're finding a way out of that godly wisdom. <laughs> the single people in here are like, yeah, all the amen people are coming from the married people. <laughs> like all those amens are the people that are married. Like doesn't there have to be like, I have to be attracted to the person? Like we throw in all these things. I have to, I should be, a, like there's some, I think I read some things in the Bible where the person's attracted to their spouse. Yes, but it never says like you must be. Like there were arranged marriages where people were like shocked when they saw them. Like, oh. So my parents don't love me. I get it. That happens all over the time. I don't know. That's not God's wisdom. Now, I know I know, it's, and this has been said to me actually a couple times, like, well, it's easy for you to say you're married and your wife is beautiful. Yeah, but I'm not. <laughs> and I wasn't successful when she married me. Like, I was a youth pastor and I wore, like, Abercrombie and Fitch. I was not <laughs> successful when she married me. 
So how do you know she wasn't the one applying God's wisdom? Now, I know it breaks down after a while. You're like, wait, doesn't that break down? Shouldn't you guys both be applying God's wisdom? Yes, you guys, you, guys, peop, you guys should be applying God's wisdom to the ways that the culture says who you should marry and who you should not marry. But we don't. We know we don't. We're like, yes, that person loves God, but. Another way, the world says fight to get into the best school. Fight to get into Stanford or Berkeley or USF, UCSF or where... <laughs> Did you see how much Berkeley pride was at the um, baptism last week? <laughs> so awesome. I need to get into these schools. Or parents say get into these schools so you can get the best job. God's wisdom, not, not, not that God's wisdom say it doesn't get into the best school, but what's the end game? God's wisdom says take up your cross, follow him, which may mean using your intellect to protect widows, which is like a dead-end job according to the world. God's wisdom is not worldly wisdom. So success and power, how do I make a decision? How do I handle pressure? How do I, what do I do with what I know? How do I make my life count in this world? If you apply the world's wisdom, you will never find the power of God. If you apply the world's wisdom, you will never find the peace of God, the wisdom of God, or the strength of God. You have the wrong map. This is what Paul is saying. If you have Greek wisdom or Jewish wisdom, it'll never lead you to the power of God. It'll never lead you to the wisdom of God. God's wisdom is totally other, and it subverts all other wisdom. It says that the weak are strong, and that doesn't make sense. We want to win. We want to win today. We want to win. We love, at the end of our movies, when our hero or, or, or whoever that may be, beats everyone else, or if they die, they go down with a blaze of glory. They go down shooting. That's how we want every movie to end. Because this, the way of, the, of God is antithetical to the way the world thinks, and this is how Paul is building his argument. He says in verse 20, where's the wise person? This is a deliberate reference to the, to the Greeks. They loved wisdom. They loved Sophia. They actually Phileo, which is a, a Greek word for love. They phileo Sophia or phileo Sophie. They philosophy is where we get our word. They loved wisdom. Where's the, where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? That is a, a, a direct reference to the Jews or, or scribes. Where is the philosopher of this age or a good translation by Thesselton, who's a commentator who we have outside, um, not him as a person, but the book, his book. Um, <laughs> He translates this, the world order, which I think is a great translation. Where is the philosopher of this world order, the way that the world thinks? And this is a, this is a general reference to basically the public. When, when, a, when a person has wisdom in this world, where is that person? And this is what Paul says. To the, to the Greek, to the Jew, to just the general public, has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, How? has God made the wisdom of the world foolish? And he goes on, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. You can't get to know God through the world's way of thinking. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Then Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Where's the Greek? Where's the Jew? Where's anyone else? Did anyone through their own wisdom and intellect and reason and observation ever find the wisdom of God? And Paul says, no. 
No one has ever found the wisdom of God that way. And why? And he says this, because Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Jews want signs. When Jesus took on flesh and claimed to be the Messiah, he did wonderful miracles. He healed. He proclaimed the inbreaking kingdom of God. Not only did he proclaim the inbreaking kingdom of God, he embodied the inbreaking kingdom of God through miracles, through healings. He embodied it by bringing peace, by bringing shalom. He cast out demons. He raised people from the dead. He walked on water. He had power over nature, over sickness, over disease, over people who were, who were suppressing other people. He had power over it all. But many Jews, many scribes, many leaders still weren't satisfied. They would go to Jesus over and over again and demand that Jesus show show them a sign. Jesus, give us a sign. And Jesus says, I'm not going to give you a sign. Though his signs were everywhere. See, what they were doing is they wanted them, they wanted Jesus to prove he was Messiah. They were withholding judgment until Jesus met their criteria. Yeah, I've seen what you've done, but do what I want you to do. And if you don't do what I want you to do, I'm not going to believe in you. So show us a sign. I'm not going to make a decision until you give me what I want. This is why the, the Greeks, they, de, they demand signs. They demand power. Jews demanded signs, and the greatest sign of all was that Jesus, or Messiah, would crush Rome. Show us a, a sign, Christ. Uh, crush Rome. Set up rule as king in Jerusalem. Be the triumphalistic ruler, Messiah of Israel. That's what they were wanting Jesus to do. Jews demand signs, but Greeks look for wisdom. Greeks are known for their wisdom. Even today we can name Greek philosophers such as Plato or Socrates or Aristotle. Greek philosophers and sophists like uh, Protagoras taught the proper management of one's own affairs. They would travel around and they would deliver these eloquent speeches, but the philosophers and some sophists actually taught on how to manage your own affairs, how to, how to be the best Um, how to run a good household, how to manage all of your public affairs. And Greek philosophy started with me and how I know and I know the world and it worked out to find logic everywhere else. And Paul is saying here, if you're a Greek looking for a framework for wisdom, you're not going to be satisfied with the cross. If you're a Jew who wants a sign, you won't find one here. See, I think Americans are a good hybrid of Jew and Greek. We want success, but we also want power. Show us a sign, but also give us success. Now, why why won't you find it? Paul's saying you won't find it here. Why not? Because Paul says we preach Christ crucified. Verse 23, it says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. So follow Paul's line of, uh, of thought here. He says, Jews demand sign, but the cross is a stumbling block to you. That word stumbling block literally means scandal, scandal on. It means the cross is a scandal to you. Greeks look for wisdom, but the cross is foolishness to you. It's absurdity. It's moronic, as we talked about last week. The, 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 the Jews looked at the cross, and it was a stumbling block. They trip over the cross because it's a scandal. You may have a Messiah, And you may have a crucifixion, but you can't have both. At least not from the perspective of merely human understanding. Because a Messiah meant power and splendor and triumph, and a crucifixion meant weakness, humiliation, and defeat. 
This is why they were scandalized by the cross. They were scandalized by the Christian message. And Greeks thought it was foolishness. How can the gospel be a form of wisdom, a form of Sophia, when the message concerns a crucified Christ? See, for us in the West, for the most part, the cross is not offensive to us. Last week I showed you an image of the cross, and I said, what do you think of when you think of the cross, when you see the cross, what sort of, what sort of things pop and flood into your mind? And a lot of things that come into our mind are tranquility and peace and joy and triumph. The crosses that we see now are real clean, they're beautiful, they, they hang on our, on our neck or they adorn our lapels, they hang on buildings or in churches and hospitals. The cross is pretty sterilized in our mind. We forget in the Roman world it was the worst way to die. It was an instrument of torture and death. And not just that, the cross was a shocking image in the ancient world. The cross signified evil and shame and rejection and punishment. The cross was reserved for convicted slaves and convicted terrorists and could never be imposed on a Roman citizen. Or more, even a more respectable criminal was not even allowed to be crucified. It was so offensive to good taste that crucifixion was never mentioned in polite society. You never even talked about the cross in polite society. For Gentiles who might imagine a divine savior figure or for a Jew who expected a Messiah anointed with power and majesty, a notion of a crucified Christ, a Messiah on a cross, was an affront and an outrage. One of my, my theologian friends, Gary Brashear, says, imagine Osama bin Laden. And that's exactly what it must have been like. Imagine going around with that message. And people would have said, are you absolutely crazy? It's not that it wasn't anti-rational. Like, no, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't calculate. It wasn't that. It was that the cross was conveyed as a social stigma. It's, it was vulgar. You can't say that if you walked around imagining the event of 9-11 and saying that was the event, you would be, in America, that's what it was like. For today, the cross is so sterilized to us, it's so beautiful to us, and it should be, but you have to realize that it's foolishness. It was foolishness when it was preached. And this is why Paul says that the cross is the foolishness of God. And the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Verse 24, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Okay, this, this scandal, this, this offensive vulgarity, the power of God, the wisdom of God. And they were going, how is that the power of God and the wisdom of God? The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, Paul writes, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is like a, a tease. He's like, God is so strong. That if he had, was foolish, if he could be foolish, it would be wiser than your smartest people. It's a taunt. He's saying that's, how, that's, that's the wisdom of God. And this is, this is what Paul's saying. Here's the summation. Here's the point of everything Paul's writing here. He says, do you want signs? Do you want a sign? Hey, Jews, you want a sign? Christ, the power of God. See what he says there? Hey, you want a sign? That's why he says it's the power. It's supposed to correlate. Hey, Greeks, do you want wisdom? Christ, the wisdom of God. But it doesn't look like what you think. It doesn't look like what you expect. 
Do you want power? Christ. Do you want signs? Christ. But it's not, it's not what you thought. It's not what you expect. Because if you demand it on your own terms, you'll miss it every single time. That's the point of the passage. If you demand, God, you better, you, you, you have to look like this, and you have to believe this about self-expression, you have to believe about this about politics, you have to believe this about, you have to basically be me. Be me, but a little bit better. Then I'll accept you. Like we talked about a couple weeks ago, that's a cult. That's, that's not Christianity. Christianity is, this is who Christ is, this is who God is. But if you accept God on his terms, you'll find everything you're looking for. If you accept God on his terms, you'll find everything you're looking for. Let me read to you. I only, I only try to read this quote once a year. I think I've read it four times, so I owe you a year. <laughs> C.S. Lewis <laughs> ends his book, Mere Christianity, like this. And it just fits so perfectly. I want to read it to you. You might not have ever heard me quote this, so here it goes. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber, fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and then with him, everything else thrown in. And then it says, I don't know what's on there, it says, the end. That's how he ends his book. That book is so good. This is, and C.S. Lewis, this is Paul's theology. This is what Paul is saying. This is actually New Testament theology. This is Christ, this is Christology. This is what Jesus was preaching in the Beatitudes. This is exactly what the cross says. No one saw this coming. No one saw the power of God and the wisdom of God dying shamefully, bloody, naked, subdued, broken, mocked, and tortured on a cross. But those are God's terms, a cross. Now, why does it have to be like this? Why do I have to, why is the entry point and then the, the life that, sh- that shapes the Christian a crossed, cross-shaped life? Why is that? Here's why. Jesus said it on the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes. Jesus ascribes good fortune or blessedness, not to the successful. We live in a city that's very, very successful. Jesus says, blessed are you, not not the successful, not the powerful, not the self-confident. Blessed are you who are bereaved or mourning. Blessed are you if you're meek or hungry and thirsty or persecuted or poor. Why are you blessed if you're poor or persecuted or meek or bereaved or thirsty or hungry? Why are you blessed then? This is why. Because they are driven to abandon self-reliance. I cannot rely on myself anymore. Why was testimony after testimony last Sunday about brokenness? Why, if you're observing this community, if you've been here for a while observing this community, you always hear about brokenness? Why are you sitting in, in our chairs and, and, and saying another song about how dumb I am? 
Another song about how weak I am? Another song about how broken I am? Like, get over it. Let's move on to power now. Why is Christianity a broken person's religion, a broken person's faith? Why is it that? Because it's the end of self-reliance. To seek the grace of God on God's terms and not your own terms. It's the end of self-reliance. Last week, we heard a testimony by a gentleman named James. And every single testimony was so powerful. This one, this one was pretty potent just concerning what we've been talking about on Sunday. And I asked James if I can read it. I said, can you write out what you, what you said last week? And he said, yeah. And he wrote it out, and I want to just read part of it to you. He stood up and he said this. He said, as a former atheist, I struggle with the paradox of self-sufficiency. In our culture, a tremendous amount of value and self-worth is placed upon personal strength. And thus, I tried to rely on my own strength to love others and to save myself from the inner pain I felt through accomplishing goals. However, the more I tried, the more jealous, hateful, judgmental, greedy, and selfish I found myself becoming. Now I treasure how Paul declares that he has found strength in his weakness. For while I may possess the strength to make a high-pressure business decision or stand up for what I believe in, that is simply human strength. It is only, the, the, it's only divine strength that can save us from ourselves. It's this whole theology of when I'm weak, when, I'm, when my self-reliance is gone, exacerbated, that's when I have strength. I won't boast in my college education. I won't boast in, in, in how many good things I have. I, won't, I will boast in the things where I've lost. I will boast in my weakness. What if we as a church started boasting, not in our startup company, not in our education, not in the career that we had, not in the person that we're dating, but the places where we're most broken, we're most vulnerable, where we're most tempted. And when the reason why we boast in them is because that's a point where we can invite the cross in. That's a point where we have no more self-reliance. I can't rely on myself on that one. I don't have the strength there. This is, this, is, this is what Paul is talking about. This is why the cross brings us in. This is, uh, let me read this to you. There is a wisdom, there is a wisdom in not allowing human wisdom to be the key to knowing God. Let me read that again because you, you might not have caught that. There is a wisdom in not allowing human wisdom to be the key to knowing God because it levels everything. It levels everything. It puts Jew and Greek, wise and foolish, trained and untrained, American or Hindu, Christian upbringing or atheist upbringing on the same level, canceling out all human enlightenment. And it makes knowing God all about trust and not about wisdom. Knowing God is all about trust. This is why Paul says, we, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. It's not save those who have thought over this long and hard and made a rational decision. It's those who actually, at some point, logic has to make this leap of faith to belief. God calls both Jew and Greek. The message of the gospel is preached. God calls through preaching, through the message preached, through the gospel preached, and you believe because it stands in contradiction to ordinary human wisdom at times. 
It's only for those who will take the risk and put their whole trust in God to save in God's way. See, there's an, there's an intellectualism that sets, it, that sets itself up against God to excuse rebellion. And I think that's happening in our, in our church. There's, there's, there's people in our, in our community who maybe you've not come to trust Christ with your life and believe upon him and be saved. And it's because there's, there's some intellectualism that you have. There's, there's some sort of like, but I know better. And it's really just set up as rebellion against God. And there's those of you that are following Christ, that are Christian. But you know that there's a way that you're living in, whether it's a re, in relationship with someone, romantic or otherwise, your, your pursuit of a career goal and the power in your career, or the way that you see and use money, or the way that you see and use your body, or the way you see and use substances, that your intellect is setting itself up for excuse, to, uh, for excuse of rebellion against God. There's a point where you're like, I don't, I don't have to believe anymore. I could just know now. There might be a part of your life where this is happening. The call for the Christian The call into discipleship is to take up your cross and follow Jesus. To take up your cross. That means cross is a, wherever you find a cross, you find a dead person. And you would die. If you ever read the the book of Mark, my favorite gospel, we taught through it when we first started the church. Chapters one through eight, Mark reads so fun, like a comic book almost. The word immediately and kicking demon butt comes up over and over again. Like over, like immediately Jesus came here and demon gone and then person healed and then walking on water and then be still and shut up. Like all these things and Jesus is like a superhero pouring through Galilee, pouring through people and just showing everyone that he's, he's Messiah. And he's, he looks like Messiah, chapters one through eight. And then he takes his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi and he says, who, who are people saying that I am? What are they calling me? Like, oh, Jesus, there's, they're saying great things about you. You're Elijah. You're John the Baptist resurrected. You're this. You're that. You're the prophet. You're Moses. You're, you're, you, you're the man. I mean, you're, just, you're it. And, they, and he says, what do you, what do you guys think? And they're like, we think you're Messiah. You're the one. You're the one that's setting all things right. You're the one that's going to rule and reign. You are the one. He's like, heaven revealed that to you. Then he said this. Then it says, Mark says, then he began to teach that he must suffer, die, and go to a cross. From that point right there. And that point in Mark's narrative, everything changes. There's only like one more miracle. There's one more, um, there's one more healing that's it. There's, after that, there, it goes all the way to the cross, and then it's suffering from then on out. And then Peter stands up and says, Jesus, you're not going to die. Like, first of all, I got your back. Like, I have a sword. I'm strong. I'm Peter. Like, I got you. You're safe with me. But second of all, you're the Messiah. You can't die. You're not going to die. And actually, the word is he rebuked Jesus. Can you imagine rebuking Jesus? It's like, Jesus, no. Like, it's just hand in the face. Just no, you're not going to do that. You're not going to die, man. I got, like, and then Jesus, it was like a double rebuke. Jesus rebuked him. He said, get behind me, Satan. Like, when Jesus calls you Satan, it's not good. 
get behind me, Satan. And he says, you have your mind on the things of man, not the things of God. Your way to power is still saturated with the worldly wisdom. And, you, and the, way that you, the way that you think and the way that you feel, the way that you think this whole thing's going down has wrapped up in it this, this hero that's, that's, that's made by the world's wisdom. He says, I will go to the cross. And then he says this, anyone who desires to follow me must take up their cross and follow me. And then from then on out, Jesus is going to the cross. You and I, as followers of Christ, our entry point is brokenness. Our entry point is weakness. But the rest of our lives, and this is what we'll be talking about next week, the rest of our lives are to be shaped around denial, around self-sacrifice. Though you and I have rights as Americans, though we have rights as people, what does it look like to follow Jesus and to give up certain rights to show the city of the gospel? to live a life that looks like Christ. The only way that we have the power to do it is looking to the cross ourselves and boasting in our weakness, boasting when we're not smart enough, boasting when we've tried it all and we still didn't get to where we wanted to get, we still didn't please the people we wanted to please, we still didn't even please ourselves. And letting that be the point of entry. And as we close, allow me to invite you, if you've never placed your trust in Christ, to do so today. Let me pray. God, I thank you. I thank you because unless you call, we can't believe. Unless that goes out, we're hopeless. And I believe that the people that have gathered here today, I believe, Christ, that you've called. And there are those in here this morning that have not trusted in you and believed upon you. And I pray that they would surrender now. They would submit their lives to you now. They would repent of their sins now and say, I choose Christ. I'm following Jesus. I'm taking this leap of trust I pray that they would believe in you, God. And I ask that this church, though I know that these seats are filled with very, very talented, successful people, I pray that we'd begin to start boasting in our weakness. Not that we can appear better, but that Christ can appear beautiful. That Christ would be shown the cross would be revealed through our lives, God. And Lord, I, I pray that as we move forward and journey through this book that you would show us what that even looks like. I have to confess to you there's times where this church outwardly looks very successful. God, we don't want, we don't want the worldly wisdom. God, we want your wisdom. Show the city what real brokenness looks like through us, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.